You're listening to Were You Still Talking? Here we go. Hey, welcome back. This is Were You Still Talking? I am Joel Albrecht, and today on the show, I have an amazingly accomplished person. Uh, Dr. Guy Windsor is a world-renowned instructor and pioneering researcher of medieval and Renaissance martial arts, which I have heard of, but never met anyone directly who does it. He's been teaching the art of arms full-time since founding the School of European Swordsmanship in Halinski, Finland in 2001. His day job is finding and analyzing historical swordsman tri- Oh, I, I knew I'd mess that up. Maybe I'll edit this. His day job is finding and analyzing historical swordsmanship treaties, figuring out the systems they represent, creating a syllabus from these treaties for his students to train with, and teaching the system to his students all over the world. Guy is the author of numerous classic books about the art of swordsmanship and is consulted in sword fighting and game design and stage compacts. And stage combat is what I'm trying to say, which all of these things uh, have always interested me. Always been really excited about that. He developed the card game uh, Audadia. I knew I'd pronounce that wrong. Based on uh, Fiore de Lebris' Art of Arms, his primary field of study. In 2018, Edinburgh University awarded him a PhD by research publications for his work recreating historical combat systems. Guy Windsor, welcome to the podcast. Very nice to meet you. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for having me. Nice to meet you, too. Uh, this is a, a very unique field of study. It is. It has always interested me. Um, I've I've never actually bought a sword, but I'm rethinking that idea again. Uh, where, like, how did you? How did this come about? Has it always been something that you were interested in, like from childhood? Well, it's it's, it's kind of complicated. I mean, well, I started out being into martial arts generally, mm -hmm. and I've always had a fascination for blades. Just blades are cool. I just like swords. There's, yeah. there's no reducing it. And some some people like cars. Other people like football. Some people just like swords. Right. Um, and so I did sport fencing at school. Uh, and when I got to university, I was doing Monday and Wednesday nights was sport fencing. Tuesday and Thursday nights was Tai Chi. Fridays was Kabuto, which is Japanese weapon stuff. Mm -hmm. Saturday was karate. They opened up an Aikido club at one point at eight o'clock on a Wednesday morning and I went to that I and mean, basically if it was a martial art I'd do it and if it was actual like university studies it came a distant second to the martial arts stuff um but the thing is modern sport fencing is well it's basically it's a sport and a game that has evolved from or been developed from classical fencing of the 19th century uh and it has very little relationship to what you actually do in a sword fight so right. I was a bit frustrated with it because I was wanting to do real sword fighting and that was the closest thing I could find. And other people were similarly frustrated. This is in the early 90s. Um, and so we sort of got together and started fencing each other according to rules that made more sense to us. And then we discovered, oh, there are actual books written by people who really knew how to sword fight back in the time when if you made a mistake in a sword fight, you were going to die, not lose a point, actually die. So let's have a look at those books and see if we can figure out how they're telling us to fight. And it just sort of developed from there. We started a club. After a while, I moved to Finland and opened my school. And it's just, yes, I've just been doing that ever since, really. And it's just kept going. Well, I mean, it seems like most uh, young boys, at least I sure was, are pretty fascinated with swords. And, you know, the... the uh, Girls too. 
Girls too. Yeah, it's true. This is true. Uh, and it, and it um, I mean, it's been in the movies forever. You know, Errol Flynn, Errol Flynn was famous for um, really fencing. But I, you've already answered one of my questions, kind of the difference between fencing and sword fighting. But another one of my questions is, um, is there any sort, well, there's a couple, I have a couple, it's kind of a two-part question. One is, how long do you think a, combat, a sword combat would actually last? And the second one is, um, are any of the uh, movie depictions of these fights where they just nick each other and walk away? Do you, uh, do you th realistic or was there, do you think that was ever a thing? Uh, okay, sword fights can last almost any amount of time depending on the, the situation and the goals. So, mm -hmm. for example, there have been periods in European history where a sword fight might be a judicial combat where there's a challenger and someone who has been challenged over a point of law, like, did you murder this person? But there are no witnesses. I am challenging you, saying you murdered. And if the challenger fails to win before the allotted time runs out, they have been deemed to be slanderous and in a matter, in a, in a capital part, in, if you slander someone over a capital crime, you get hanged. And, oh, <laughs> and if, if the person who has been challenged is simply still standing at the end, they have won. Okay. So the challenged wow. person just had to stay alive and the challenger had to prove their case. Okay. So, but then there are other occasions where, you know, you're meeting at dawn on a romantic misty morning and there's in a forest maybe and there's a clearing and you know the seconds and everything and mm -hmm. you're having the fight and you kind of want to get it over with quite quickly because the police might show up and you know so also actually you mentioned movies one of the absolute best duels of cinema history isn't actually european sword fighting at all it's from uh hiro kurosaka's i'm mispronouncing his name his seven samurai Oh yeah, and there's this fantastic duel where this guy's been like challenged and what have you, like oh yes I can beat you, no you can't leave me alone, and eventually they have a fight with bamboo, and it's obvious to the person who knew what they were doing that they won, but the other person wouldn't take it, so they move to swords, and it's one move, so this guy comes towards him and he cuts him down, boom, end of story, right? That is in many respects the ideal sword fight. Right. Over very quickly, right. it's a single move. But I mean, we have the term like fencing, like to fence around an issue, which is that sort of exploratory bish bash bosh, as, as the blades kind of, you know, if I do this, what do you do? Da, 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 not committing to anything, mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. as soon as you commit to something, then blood is likely to be spilt, yours or the other person's, and you want to be absolutely sure it's going to be theirs. And so in that sort of fencing period you have um you're sort of you're testing out your opponent seeing how they're going to, res to respond to what you're going to do and also you're trying to tell them various lies about what you're going to do uh, and then the end comes quickly so there is no one optimal length for a sword fight it really depends whether you have time for all of that sort of exploratory work and also it could be that it's a public duel. And if people are watching and you're in a sort of military culture, the mm -hmm. absolute last thing you can afford is to appear to be afraid to go in. Right. right? Oh, right. So in that, in right. that sense, it's probably better to take a few risks because 
if you win, but in a kind of not very convincing way, and you're not really, you sort of, <laughs> um, then, you know, your, your reputation won't, won't survive it. Right. Right. And right. the duel particularly is entirely a social phenomenon, right? You go into a duel because the social pressure to duel is so extreme that it is literally the rational thing to do to risk your life in the fight. That is a better trade than declining to duel. And there are many historical examples of this. I think Aaron Burr, one of the vice presidents of the United States, got killed in a duel that he didn't want to fight. Yeah, there's a um, play about that recently. <clears throat> right. <laughs> and the Duke of Wellington, right? Famous victor of Waterloo, prime minister of Britain, massively famous soldier. No mm -hmm. one could possibly call him a coward with any basis. And I think it was the Earl of Winchelsea who said something in Parliament that the Duke simply could not afford to ignore. And so they ended up fighting a duel with pistols, right? Which is nuts because the, the Duke was absolutely against the practice of dueling. He thought it was stupid and dangerous and bad for the military because best case scenario, you lose, lose one brave officer. Right, right, right. 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 So, like, there's no, it, it's, so he was against it. And yet the social pressures were there in a sufficient degree that people did it anyway. And well, some people like well, it. And it still goes on. I mean, this, this <clears> is, happens now probably more in the U.S. than a lot of European countries, but it's, it's still that way. They don't call it a duel. They call it a fight. But where, where there used to be fist fights now, it often involves uh, firearms, right. uh, especially at bars and things. It's kind of gone back to the Old West in a, in a, in a lot of ways. So it's, it's kind of the same thing where yeah. people are embarrassed to back down and if I'm not going to back down, well, I'm going to pull my gun. Oh, you've got one too. And, and it right. kind of goes from there, you know. And the thing it still is, happens. if they back down, then the chances are good that they will regret having done so because they will lose all of their status. And without their status, they have no protection. Right? So there's, right, right. There's, good, there's good reason for it. I mean, it's the, the reason that dueling died in Europe is because... I mean, it had been illegal for a long time, and mm -hmm. people just did it because, so what? It's illegal, who cares, right? Uh, you're probably going to get away with it. In fact, most duelists who were then arrested and tried for murder got off um, because it's still, you know, it's, sort of, it's illegal, but... But it was fair, murder, that um, kind of thing, right? It's right, right. Illegal, exactly. but it was fair. <laughs> right, okay. Um, so, so, but what happened was, the culture changed, mm -hmm. and so it just became ridiculous to do it. Right. Right? right. It became like, like you, know, well, you know, grandpa might have fought a deal, but you know, that was grandpa. Uh, like, right, okay. That was like 40 that's years ridiculous. ago. That's just, that's, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, these these yeah. old-fashioned old people, they did this stupid thing, and we don't want anything to do with it. Basically, dueling died because the young laughed at it. Oh, that's interesting. That is really interesting. And but that also um, it reminded me of something that I think a lot of people don't have a don't have a clear image of. Like you're studying um, an old, you're studying like pre fencing type yeah. of martial arts, right? So what are, what yeah. are the different time periods of the kind of combat martial arts you're doing compared to the 
era of basically where fencing foils come from and and that era okay um i okay our earliest historical source and it's one i do work with is dated to around 1340. oh wow and that is uh medieval sword and buckler mm-hmm. and it's this fantastic book with uh, a, a priest teaching his scholar who's also dressed as an as a monk mm-hmm. and they're doing these sword and buckler uh techniques so a buckler is a small round shield held in the fist and the sword is like a single-handed knightly sword okay okay and so they are fencing with these and it's it's a beautifully created beautifully structured uh exposition of what you should do with sword and buckler according to this priest and incidentally we mentioned women earlier there is a woman depicted in that book with sword and buckler taking a lesson from the priest okay? oh that's interesting so it goes back it is, yeah it's 1340 right right, right. yeah you know, I, I have occasionally come across the notion that girls can't fence and it's like well we know for a sure and certain fact they've been doing it for getting on for 700 years wow wow right okay <laughs> so then um i do various other systems um which are more recent than that Mm-hmm. Um, the last of which is 18th century small sword, which is based on a book that was written in 1767, no, sorry, 1763. Okay. Um, that there's at least like 40 or 50 years more fencing after that, but it was all basically the same. It didn't change much. Mm-hmm. And during that period, pistol dueling became more common. So by the, 19th century most dueling was done with pistols and fencing became more academic and then we have by the middle of the 19th century we have what we call classical fencing which um, developed into the sort of foil epée saber that we know today and then that remained relatively unchanged i mean there were developments and what have you but it was still recognizably the same art right until 1950s when they started electrifying fencing so that the registry of hits would be more accurate. Oh, I didn't and realize then, it was that long that they've been doing that. Yeah, That's amazing. And then, and then when fencing became electrified, it really started to change quite rapidly. And like in the nineteen seventies is when you get the people sort of jumping back and forth and clicking at each other mm-hmm. because a guy called Johann Harmenberg figured out how to win with Epe according to the rules and with this equipment. And without really much reference to the art of fencing as it had been taught up to that point, right? And when he went went and won his um, men's individual and, and men's team epee gold medals at the Olympics in 1980, that was basically it. So he, uh, in modern parlance, he figured out how to cheat. No, he <laughs> did not cheat. He absolutely did not cheat. What he did was he recognized <laughs> that the fencing was um okay but the sport as it is as it has been codified with this equipment and these rules the old way of doing it was just made no sense it's more like the Fosbury flop right where in high jump um people were doing these pathetic little high jumps where they kind of run up and sort of skip over the bar oh right and then, yes. then yes. that Fosbury guy came along and does it completely differently and suddenly starts winning everything and then everybody's doing it everyone had to because he was winning right. by like a foot <laughs> right exactly exactly <laughs> yes so, uh, that's right so okay I, you know i don't 
I don't blame Johan Harmenberg for figuring out how fencing should be done in the modern age with this equipment. Mm-hmm. I blame the people who electrified fencing in the first place, which basically ruined it because it meant that all you had to do was get your light to light up by completing the circuit um, before your opponent did, or well, according to the rules or what have you. But basically, in Epe, for instance, if my point hits you, I think it's two tenths of a second before you hit me. I get the point. Oh, right. So it right, doesn't actually right. matter what happens after I've hit you. Unless, as long as you don't hit me in that two tenths of a second. Uh-huh. Right. And it doesn't matter whether I've just like scratched you on the calf and three tenths of a second later, you run your sword right through me. I still get the point. Right. So that's why it looks so bizarre. You know, watching yeah. it on the Olympics, it's like, what are they yeah. doing? Yeah. It, <laughs> What are they okay, doing? These are, they are very high-level athletes. Oh, doing yeah. Something very, very difficult, very, very quickly, at an extraordinarily high level. It just yeah. doesn't bear much relationship, as far as I can see, to what you would want to do if the swords were sharp and your opponent was trying to murder you. And that is, for better or worse, where my interest lies. Right, right. Well, it's kind of more interesting <laughs> to a lot uh, of I us. would say so. I, I mean, but, you know. but, you know, I but, know sport fencers who love sport fencing, and, yeah, why shouldn't they? Why shouldn't they? Because it's an yeah, it is an incredible yeah, high level um, uh, exercise and, and system. It's I know it's really high. I yeah. know some people who are fencers, and it, it's um, very difficult. And take it's a it's a great exercise. Um, yeah. You mentioned I think at least four four or five martial arts that you started training in when yeah. um, you branched out. Do you still do all those different martial arts, or have you kind of narrowed it down no, because of time? Um, or mm-hmm. well, in initially. I mean, I'm a bit of a martial arts junkie. I've trained lots of different martial arts. And whenever I get the opportunity to train a different one, I take it. Because, oh, that's great. you know, like I've done Savat Spar, a top class Savat person who obviously completely beat the crap out of me. Mm-hmm. But in a, in a kind of, you know, in a sort of martial arts proper in the, way, there's right. no malice in it. <laughs> right, right, right. But, but, you know, I'm, I'm not going to pass up the chance to train with someone who is good at a martial art because, you know, martial arts are all interesting and, you know, they all have the thing that they're designed to be good for. Mm-hmm. So, for example, um, modern kickboxing is designed to win medals in the kickboxing ring, which has, depending on which federation you're with, there are different rules and what have you. Like, for example, in many cases, you cannot kick below the waist, right? Right. And so it's high kicks, and, and that's there to make it look better and be more interesting to watch, mm-hmm. right? Likewise, judo. I mean, I've never trained judo because I've never happened to have the opportunity to do it particularly seriously, um, which is a massive gap in my education, I'm happy to admit. Mm-hmm. Um, but like in judo, you get the point for putting the person down on their back. Right. Right. Now, right. if they are holding a knife, or if it is a, any kind of real situation, you want them on their front. But if they're on their front, they can't move. They can't use their arms and legs so well. I mean, you can't fight someone who's behind you. Right. But oh, if, you're right. On, if they're on their back, right. they can keep fighting. Right. So mm-hmm. it allows for a much more interesting wrestling match if you score by putting them on their back. Right. Okay. Yeah. Because 
as they're going down, if they can just avoid both shoulders hitting the mat at the same time, they can keep fighting and it's cool. Put them down their front, as arresting officers will tend to do, mm-hmm. right, for good reason, then, you know, the, the fight's over. Okay? So it really depends on what you want the martial art to do. And they're all different. They all have their different sort of cultural ideals, um, context in which they're supposed to work. Most martial arts, in my experience, have at least a dollop of bullshit in them. Where right. They make claims right. that aren't strictly accurate. Uh, right. Uh, but, you know, is, so yeah. you're aware of that. Well, it's, it's kind of what the whole um, ultimate fighting was created for to, to supposedly yeah. show. <clears throat> that you know only my martial art is going to work and nothing else right and, yeah and which is and, why and, to, and to me it's quite boring now because if it works you're going to get someone on the ground and kind of beat the crap out of them and that that's yeah. it's going to look the same every time for, so it, it got a bit, it got a bit like yeah i've okay i've seen this match it, the, yeah. guess in what the, the strong days. guy wins <laughs> <laughs> in the right? very early days it was more interesting because you got yes stylists from different styles coming in and fighting each other. Exactly. That right. was far so more interesting to me. you have a karate guy against a judo yes. guy or whatever, and that yes. was more interesting. And once the Gracies but, came in and beat everyone, it was like, well, I'm going to have to learn well, that. They, but they did, they did what Harmenberg did with Fessy. Exactly. They looked at the rules, exactly. they looked at the environment, yeah. and they figured out the best strategy for winning, and they are... They were superbly good at that, and their students yeah. or whatever have gone on to win many titles and because it works, and it's a very high-level skill and whatever, and it's it's not my thing. I'm more of a weapons person. Right. Right? Yeah. Because I'm fundamentally lazy, and the thing is... <laughs> you know, lazy to learn swordsmanship. <laughs> well, no, well, yes, but yeah. Okay, in a, in a, let's say you're in a, in a boxing match. Mm-hmm. Right, it's a lot of really hard work, and oh, you have to punch man. a lot and get punched a lot, and it's like it's hard work. Yeah, and the amount of effort it takes to stick a sword through a person is about the same amount of effort as it takes to offer them a cup of tea. Oh, interesting. Okay. Right, now, you got a point there. The, yeah, we do the push-ups <laughs> and squats and all, all, yeah. all that sort of physical training as well because it's useful. Strength is useful. Yes, but what weapons do is. They equalize things mm-hmm. to a great degree. Okay. And, you know, with a, well, the, I'm blanking on his name, but the leader of the English Knights at Agincourt, right, full armor, polaxed, on foot, he was renowned for being short. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. But he is like the most highly regarded knight in English chivalry at the time. Yeah. So you don't have to be a big, a big bloke to win if you use swords or right. weapons or pilots or whatever. I mean, sometimes it helps. Every world class FAS is tall and thin. Oh, interesting. Yeah, oh, because they're much. long. Those long. Yeah, arms. exactly. They want to hit long you from arms. far away. Yeah. Uh, most really good wrestlers tend to be short and wide. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. It just works better. You know, swimmers tend to have long backs and big feet, yep. right? I mean, any given any given sport will have its ideal body type. But with swords, we have so many different swordsmanship styles that there really isn't an ideal body type for swords in general. Um, for instance, if you're into medieval combat and wrestling is a part of what we do, then actually having a low center of gravity can be an advantage. 
Oh, yeah. interesting. So, yeah, getting back to the medieval combat, this is another. I went to a um, a trade show for movies. It was years and years ago, but there was a um, a weapon weapons person there um, who had a, an array of swords, and he was, uh, according to him, much more accurate with than most. And uh, he he was letting people hold the broadswords, and mm -hmm. mainly to show. Look how light this thing is. Um, yeah. So I so that is true. That's that's accurate. Yeah, because I it was light and easy to throw around. Whereas Absolutely. it seems a lot of broadswords I think are made wrong and they're ridiculously heavy. And I it's like yeah. how would you do battle with that? Exactly. I mean, it really yeah. it's, it's useful to think of a sword as a tool, right? And yes, a tool you're supposed to be able to swing. You know, if it's medieval combat, you might be in battle. It might go on for hours. Right. Yeah, this is always this always amazed me that um, yeah. they those battles went on sometimes for days. Um, yeah. in those days, it, it just so, blow, so they must have been incredibly healthy, <laughs> you know, incredibly <laughs> strong. Well, they were fit. I mean, they're professional yeah. warriors generally. Yes, swords have always been expensive, and so generally speaking, most sword carrying people in the Middle Ages tended to be of the warrior class. Mm -hmm and had been trained since childhood in the art of arms. Okay, so a knight would very often be born into the you know, son of a knight, so some sort of noble family, trained from the age of about 11 or 12, um, and at so 18, 19, maybe 20, would be knighted, which indicates he sort of completed his training and he's like got a faculty like a commission in the army. You are now qualified mm -hmm. to lead troops. Yeah, right, knights, right. Knights had retinues that they would lead into battle. Okay. But let's get back to the weight of the swords. I mean, the heaviest sword I own is about five foot two inches long. The cross guard is about 20 inches wide. The blade is about three and a half inches wide at the cross guard. Wow. Okay. The thing is a beast. Yeah. And it weighs about five and a half pounds. Oh, that's um, yeah, that's amazing. Right. So easy to easy to wield. Yeah, whereas, wield. whereas a yes. single-handed sword will very often weigh well under two pounds. Right. Speaking in American, of course. Yeah. Thank you. I, I appreciate on. that for the American podcast. So that that segues perfectly into one of my questions. Um, the um, sword collection. Um, for those who are not watching the YouTube, which is most of people listening to the podcast, um, he has a a rack of swords behind him, and I'm curious what um, what percentage of your collection does that represent? Like, how many swords have okay. do you have? I I don't actually collect swords. These are just the tools of my trade, and I'll, okay. so I describe them quickly for the listeners. Okay, on the bottom row of the rack, there is a single-handed knightly broadsword. You could say we call it an arming sword. Um, there are two of those. There's also a sharp longsword and a blunt longsword. The longsword is about four feet long. Um, above that, there are two rapiers, one blunt, one sharp. The rapier is, has a very long blade. My rapier blades are about 42, 43 inches and are quite a fancy hilt and the sword's held in one hand. On the rack above that, there is a 200-year-old cavalry saber. And behind that, there is a modern reproduced um, 16th century Italian style sword, which we would call a spada da filo, 
edge tool. Mm-hmm. Above that, there's a rack with a Diavana-style broadsword, which looks a bit like a Scottish basket sword, basket hilt sword, and two falchions, because I do like falchions. And then the line above that, there are two small swords. One of them is about 240 years old, and I use that for like solo training and what have you. And the other one behind it is uh, a modern reproduction, which I can actually pencil. Oh, I see. So, and that's, yeah. that's maybe hard to say. I would guess probably half of the swords that I actually own. That you train with and, and own. Um, the rapier um, has always been my favorite. I don't know why. I just, I've always liked the design of that sword. It's yeah. Beautiful. They're, they're pretty. Yeah, they're pre- they're, that's it. They're pretty. <laughs> and some of them are no really pretty. Yes. And, and many of yeah. my students and colleagues and friends are drawn to one specific weapon. And mm-hmm. they do just that weapon and the sort of the weapons associated with it. So, for example, if you're doing rapier, you might do rapier and dagger or rapier and cloak. Um, others like me, you know, I like pretty much everything from when records began in 1340 up until swords stopped being carried by gentlemen as sidearms. Okay, so around 1800. So that's okay. that's my preference. And this is just the stuff I'm drawn to, mm-hmm. I have no explanation for it. I prefer sidearms. So with guns, I prefer pistols and revolvers to rifles, just because I just like them more. I can use both, but and obviously, you know, in a actual like, if I had to join the army and do like nasty military stuff, I'd want a rifle, not a pistol. But you know, if I got a choice to have just one to shoot for fun, I would take a pistol over a rifle every time. But I just like sidearms better. I would want two rifles and three pistols. <laughs> well, I, actually, actually, I actually have three pistols in Finland where I have licenses that kind of stuff, but you can't uh-huh. have them here in um, So, like, swords are sidearms. They're never the primary weapon. So a knight on a horse will have usually a lance. Oh, right. Right? right. And when that breaks or he gets in too close, out comes the sword. Um, an archer would have usually a falchion. So... When they've run out of arrows or the enemy breaks through, you don't want to be, you know, trying to fight with a bow because, mm-hmm. you know, they're completely useless as quarterstaffs. That's one thing that really annoys me in, in movies. When people use bows like quarterstaffs, they just don't work that way. The mass distribution is entirely wrong. Oh, right. And that I, makes sense. I can geek out on that as much as you want. If you well, like I've, I've actually <laughs> done, I've done enough martial arts to understand com- exactly what you're saying. Yeah, that, that totally, yeah. yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yes. And you just ruin your bow. But they have falchions, which is this kind of short, like a machete, really. Mm-hmm. That sort of size and, and shape. And yeah, for close quarter to work, where they're, they're too close for the bow to be useful, out comes the sidearm. Um, and the same is true, you know, knights on foot or soldiers on foot generally. They're not using swords, they're using spears or pikes, pole arms of some description, because you want to hit the person from far away, right? And right. it's the Romans that were kind of weird about it, right? What they would do is they would, behind their shields, they would march up and they would get super close, right? Close enough for this really short stabbing sword that we know as the gladius to go to work. So it's like maybe the whole thing is maybe two feet long mm-hmm. or less. Oh, God. Sometimes okay. they're really quite short. Uh-huh. Um, but the pilum was used first, which is this sort of throwing spear that has this long, thin um, iron head and a sharp point. And the, the point of that is when you throw it, usually the barbarian running towards you 
has a shield, it hits the shield, and then the weight of the pilum bends the iron and stuck in the shield, and that drags the shield down, so they have to drop the shield. So they oh. don't have time to fiddle about. And uh-huh. so they're coming up against your shield with that one. And your little sword, yeah. And then, and then, and then they say together in their very strict formations, and they go to work now. I am not a scholar of Roman military stuff. So if anyone listening is, and I screwed that up, please send me an email and let me know how completely wrong I am. Because I just, you managed to kind of get me to wander off, off my area of expertise. (laughs) (laughs) That's what we're here for. I like, I like people to wander off. That's always good. Uh, um, So UT, oh, this is, this is my thing. I'm, I'm a big movie buff and, um, One of the reasons I was kind of attracted to Game of Thrones, which is a movie, even though it's in many parts, um, is it seemed like a lot of the stuff they did had more realism, you know, than some history-based films. I don't know if you saw that yeah. or not. And oh, regard- I, I watched Game of Thrones, yeah. Yeah, okay. And and there, that's a good example where the, the swords people were trained from birth, you know, from birth. They were born yeah. to do that but, in almost every case. But unfortunately, the way the way they actually use those swords. I mean, it got better as the series progressed. Uh-huh. But, no. Not so much, yeah. Really, it was, well, really, it was more really, show, really wasn't it? bad sword fighting. Oh, it okay. awful. It, uh, I, I, actually, I have, a, I have a pet peeve about um, Sirio Farrell, right? Mm-hmm. When he's teaching Arya to fence. Okay, here's the thing. The people learn really quickly Um. That, you know, if you behave in a certain way and you get hit, don't do it. Right? Uh, right. It's, it's, right, it's right. very... Right. So when you're teaching, when you're giving a fencing lesson, the rule is really simple. If the student is doing what they're supposed to be doing, they hit the teacher and the teacher does not hit them. Okay? Oh, that way they That way they are rewarded for doing the right thing by getting the hit mm-hmm. and they are not mm-hmm. punished for doing the wrong thing by getting hit. If they're doing the wrong thing, or they're doing the right thing but not at the level that they're supposed to be doing it at, then the teacher will not let them hit them and will probably hit them back. So they know that they've done something wrong. Okay? And that's the only feedback that matters in a sword fight. Did you strike and were you struck? Everything else is pretty much irrelevant. Right. Okay, so sure. what you see Cyril Farrell do is bully and torment Arya Everything she tries, he ends up basically just demonstrating his superior fencing skill and throwing her all over the place and whatever. And there's absolutely no way that a human being can be taught like that and turn out to be a decent fencer. It's impossible, right? Because everything she tried failed. So how would she learn to do it if it never works? Right? That makes it, sense it got, to me, yeah. It got me yeah. so angry. It I, was like, I watched it like, I was, I was like, no. No, because it violated the fun, the thing I actually really care about with the swords. Yeah, mm-hmm. you expect in movies, you expect the sword fighting to be kind of flashy and, you know, sort of fun. And it's there to entertain. It's there to tell the story. It's not there to be accurate sword fighting. Well, right. like the martial arts in movies, you know, it, it, right. it's you're not going to see Jackie Chan do something that that's going to work right. necessarily. <laughs> right. Well, I suspect Jackie Chan could probably make most of that <laughs> stuff work. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. But, but like when you're, it, it, there's this trope in movies generally about the martial arts master, and I wish this trope would die, okay, which is 
The martial arts master's job is to beat the shit out of the student until by some miracle they learn. And oh, that's true. That's a, right. I'm glad you pointed that out because that is very true. Yeah. Right. Now, now, there are occasions where, and I speak from experience, where it is necessary to demonstrate upon the student why what they're doing doesn't work mm -hmm. by hitting them or throwing them on the ground or whatever. Okay. And I can, it, I've never experienced this personally, but I can see how it could happen in, in the stories that are being told on screen. You could have, it could be necessary for the master to sort of demonstrate to the students that they have the chops to actually teach them something by maybe the student challenges them and the master just beats the crap out of them. Right. But that's not a lesson. That's a job interview. Right. It's different. Oh, right. Yeah. Right. I, but I, you, you have yeah. it over and over again. Like the way you become a good martial arts master, according to what you see on the screen, is you're supposed to beat up and humiliate your students and make sure nothing they do ever works. And that is just the absolute reverse of what you should be doing. Right. When a student comes to me, okay, I've been doing stores and stuff like 30 years or something. Mm -hmm. And some total beginner, if I couldn't hit them whenever I felt like it, I have been totally wasting my time for the last 30 years. Right, right, right. So, right. so who learns anything by me, you know, just repeatedly like hitting the beginner because they can't hit me, right? No, you set it up so that they're doing the thing. And if it's good enough based on their experience, you let it through. So they know that that's what they're supposed to be doing. And if it, if they, you know, Maybe maybe they've made the strike and they have a habit of maybe kind of thinking, oh, well, it's over now, and kind of dropping the sword and pulling back, which you should never do. Then maybe every time they drop the sword, you pump them gently in the face and they very quickly stop dropping the sword. And so they learn to, you know, stay in the fight until they are completely out of measure. And they learn it really quickly and they get better really quickly because you only hit them when they have made a mistake and the hit is enough that they can they know that it's happened but never so much that it sort of that it's painful or distracting you want I them to know but you don't want them yes. to be derailed by it i completely understand this because i did do martial arts when i was younger and uh, you know i sparred every class i took sparring was a big part of it and if it wasn't i would go to a different class but er everything i did you know <laughs> sparring was important and so yeah. i sparred with a lot of black belts i sparred with degreed black belts none of them would hit you actually in the last martial arts class i took when we were sparring they said just hit them as hard as you want to be hit that's what they would <laughs> when you're sparring with advice. the black it's it's pretty good advice because you do not want if you don't want to get knocked out don't knock don't try to knock out a black belt and um so yeah, but they were always very clear about yes, I I could have done damage there, but of course I'm not going to, uh, except for the one time where a black belt ran into my fist, and that really scared me. <laughs> it made me so nervous. But he was like, "No, my fault, my fault." <laughs> well, well, that's the thing, right? Like in, in my style, if an accident occurs and there's a clear experience differential between the students it is always the older students responsibility what happened fault may be too strong a term but it's always on them mm -hmm. if one or other of them gets gets you know hit harder than they should or whatever because when you're training with someone less experienced than yourself your job is to bring them up to your level not to keep them down at that right right
And that, I mean, that's literally what happened is he didn't think I would think to do, to throw a punch when he was coming in. Right. <laughs> and I did. Oh, good. <laughs> like, Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Well, that's good. That was kind of funny, but uh, yeah. yeah, it's scary as well. <laughs> so um, where was I? Oh, so is there a, is there a, uh, a film you can point to where they did do it right or a film or a series where, where they actually did a, a fairly good job or where, um, you know, maybe the stunt coordinator seemed to really knew what he was doing and, and it looks fairly okay. accurate or somewhat accurate. Is there anything out there like that? Well, here's, here's the thing. Um, yes and no. Like the one I mentioned, um, Akira Kurosawa's Seven Samurai. Yeah. Some of the tools in that. They, I have friends <laughs> who train in really traditional Japanese or fighting arts and they look at those and go, that's pretty much what we're taught. Wow. Maybe a bit bigger and slower so the camera can see it, but that's pretty much what we're taught. Mm -hmm. um, in the European tradition sort of films, okay, my favorite sword fight is the duel at the top of the Cliffs of Insanity in The Princess Bride. Oh, how gross. Which is just a fantastic <laughs> sword fight. Yes, yeah, beautiful. Right? It's, just, beautiful. it's just cinematic, swordy heaven. Mm -hmm. But it bears no relationship whatsoever to an actual rapier duel. Right? right. And why should it? It's a fairy tale. Yeah. Right? And um, after all, they're both trying not to hurt each other. Right. Yes. They're, they're, they're two artists. <laughs> that is their being goal. Artistic with each other. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, and then, um, I mean, the closest I can think of to really good sword fights on screen which actually go the way I think they would go if it was real. Mm -hmm. um, Ridley Scott's The Duelist. Now, sadly, everything Ridley Scott has done since then from a sword fighting perspective has been absolute rubbish. Uh, don't even get me started. I, I could get very cross and that's not good for the listeners. So. Not the best. Right. But <laughs> okay. The Duelist, holy cow. It was, it was, the fights were choreographed by a guy called Bill Hobbs. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, the opening scene, you have an experienced cavalry officer with, you know, who has killed many times before. It's just part of his job. He knows what he's doing, but doesn't fence small sword. And you've got a young man who is, I think, the son of a mayor, the mayor of the town or something like that. And they're, they're having a duel of honor. And right, right. the cavalry officer has probably never fenced with a small sword before. Which is historically unlikely, but but that's we can leave that. Mm -hmm. And the young man has probably had a few fencing lessons, and you can sort of see it. But the fight goes exactly the way you would expect that to, looking at it through sort of experienced fencing eyes. Right, it's beautifully done. And later on, there's a there's a duel with cavalry sabers, mm -hmm. where these two very experienced cavalry officers who have fought many times before. They are fighting each other with these swords and they get so tired because it goes on so long because they're so equally matched that by the end they're basically kind of leaning on each other and sort of bleeding and just desperately trying to get one more smack in it. It's perfect. That's brilliant. Sorry, I, I've just I've heard of that. Um, I've seen other people point to that as a very um, very accurate mm -hmm. portrayal of swordsmanship and right. extremely and, well and done. Yeah. But none of the fights in that are good examples of the historical style brought to life on screen. 
So what we're seeing in the beginning is not a small sword duel between two expert small sword fencers. Right. We're seeing right. a cavalry officer and an inexperienced young man. And the cavalry officer, well, the movie's been out for like 40 years, so spoiler alert, no thank you. You're going to get the answer now. <laughs> yes. Right? It's Be been out a while. It's the Harvey... experienced killer does the killing. It's Harvey Keitel, right? When he's a kid. That's right. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. The experienced the experience killer does the killing. And that, honestly, that is probably also historically true. Right. That makes right. sense. Sure. And, and sure. We, we, we see it in, like, you know, modern fighter pilots too. Like look, looking at from the Second World War and Korean War and Vietnam War and what have you. Mm -hmm. um, once a fighter pilot has, like, three successful fights behind them, something like that, they suddenly get much better. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, there's yeah. There, there, are, there are books on this sort of sort of combat psychology, which mm -hmm. I've probably spent too much time reading. There, <laughs> so you have actually done you you said you in your resume you've done some um, stage combat training. Have you ever done? Is that for? Tell me a little about that. You okay? Um, you, you've trained some people for stage right, combat. Right. Have you so ever done? What happened is what happened is somebody else wrote my bio. And I copied and pasted it without reading it properly. Oh, oh okay. Um, so, so, so the stage combat thing is massively overblown. I need to go in and, and correct that. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. In the very early days, the closest thing we could find to training in historical systems was stage combat because we got to use things like rapiers and rapier and dagger and stuff like that. Oh, so me okay. and my friends did some actual stage combat training there. And that's okay. been very useful for doing like demonstrations and what have you. Mm -hmm. And I've put on loads of sword fights at like reenactment fairs and you know, sort of medieval themed dinners and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. like, loads of that. Um, done a little bit of choreographing um, and train or training actors to do sword fights on stage. But um, if somebody approaches me for that now, I have colleagues who are specialized in that area who I would point those people to. Because, oh, yes, okay. I can do it. And, you know, like, okay, many moons ago, my niece was playing Captain Hook in her school play. Mm -hmm. And so I <laughs> flew over and choreographed the fight between Captain Hook and Peter Pan at the end. Right? Oh, that's great. Well, I can, well, that's I, fine. I can do it. Uh -huh. But, yeah, and it was great. The kid who played Peter Pan, he was absolutely amazing. And I found out just to... Just, just, and when we we're having a break, he just did a one-handed cartwheel. Oh my just, gosh! Right. So we, I thought you can do one-handed cartwheels. We're putting that Let's in the do bike. that. Oh so yeah, we yeah. did. <laughs> it was, it was <laughs> That's great. Fantastic. Right. That is great. But, but yeah, it's, it's honestly it's not really my area. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and and if it was professionals asking, I would. I these days I would send it to one of my professional colleagues. Well, that's a, it's kind of an interesting point because that uh, it points out that it's a bit different. Stage combat is not medieval martial arts, right? It's a different right. different thing. It's it's yeah. not really the same thing. And the yeah. way I summarize the difference is in a real sword fight, nobody sees what just happened and somebody dies. But in stage combat, everybody sees what happens and nobody dies. Oh, so, interesting. Yeah. They, yeah. they are diametrically opposed <laughs> exactly. in, in the in the outcome. Right. 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 The intended outcome is diametrically opposed. But um, you know, there are massive amounts of overlap in, in skill set. So mm -hmm. for example, taking people who are experienced 
historical martial artists and teaching them how to fence. Well, um, on my own podcast, I had a guy called uh, Ben Crystal, who is a very well-known Shakespearean actor in the UK, who specializes in original pronunciation of Shakespeare and oh, wow. has gone really deep into how Shakespeare's plays were produced in their own time, mm-hmm. right? Including, you know, how the stages were set, what sort of stages were being used, what effects they had access to, what sort of costumes they were wearing, all that kind of stuff. And given how very little time they had to rehearse, generally, it was, it's obvious that they didn't choreograph blow-by-blow sword fights. But I've actually done this with colleagues when we had to put on a fight at a fairly short notice. Mm-hmm. We would agree a start, and one person would be sort of leading the fight, so the person sort of in, in charge, who would give the signal to move to the choreographed final kill, which might be, oh. I tap twice on your blade, and you're going to attack on the inside line, and I'm going to parry, take your weapon away, and stab you. Uh-huh. Right? It, yeah. Something like that. So in between the start, which is like, yes, we are starting now, mm-hmm. you just fence. With the understanding that you're not actually going to hit each other, you just fence. And then when it's gone on for long enough, the person leading it gives a signal, tap, tap, and then in you go for the kill. Right? I've done right, that many right. times. It's, it's, it actually gives, in many respects, the most realistic looking sword fights because mm-hmm. Because you don't know what, you're, you're not, exactly. don't know what to expect. So, yeah. Well, yeah. I, I also saw the video you have on, on YouTube of you doing combat, like in protective gear. Was that, is that a tournament oh, yeah. or, or, yeah, are those? I don't know which video you're Well, you had broadswords, you had broadswords, and you had, um, big thick outfits and uh, I think you started without helmets and then you put them on and it looked like you it looked like some kind of competition okay. but it may not I have been I wouldn't fence anyone without a, a fencing without a mask on oh so, okay it was so I'm not I'm not sure what, what video you're referring to because actually I closed my YouTube channel like years ago um, so all my stuff is on Vimeo oh but maybe it, it was on Vimeo then. <laughs> yeah, there, there, there are lots. I've, I have, I've done lots of fencing matches, as you can right. imagine. And right. many of them got videoed by various people and stuck on various platforms. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so one of the things we do for fun, to test our interpretations, to test how we work under pressure, all sorts of things like that, is we put the gear on and we fence each other. Um, more or less competitively, depending on the context. Um, so, what exactly is the question? Uh, that was kind of the question. If there's actual competitions with broadswords, oh, yeah, yeah. or if that's and, and are, more about just fencing and, and having fun. Oh, or, sure. yeah. there, there are people who organize actual tournaments. Mm-hmm. Now, I haven't participated in one since about 2002. Okay. I did loads of tournaments when I was doing sport fencing, obviously, because that's the Sweet. primary thing you're training for. Right. And, right. you know, then when I turned to you know, teaching for a living in 2001. And I went to a tournament in 2002, I think it was. And um, it, it went fine. I mean, I won mm-hmm. it, but so what? Because everyone else there was an amateur. It didn't seem like it was really appropriate. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, mm-hmm. I'm not going to do that again. So okay. Many of my students go to these tournaments. Um, the issue with tournaments is the same as the issue with any other competitive sport. What ends up happening is you have 
here's the equipment you're allowed, here is the rule set for this tournament. And the behaviors that work to win fights in the tournament are the behaviors that people will start to do. Yeah. And so a lot of what happens ends up looking a lot like kendo or like um, sport epe. Um, and it's, when it gets a bit too serious, I sort of lose interest because it loses its ability to um, adequately test the things I'm interested in testing, which is, for example, how well does this technique work at speed under pressure? So my, do not do this at home. Do not do this. This is my job. I can take certain risks from a more informed perspective. But one thing we sometimes do is with more or less protection, sometimes no protection at all, do the technique of full speed with sharp swords. Ooh. Right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. If you get it wrong, there's a good chance you're going to die. Right? So you, that's not your first stage of testing. I right? wouldn't that think is, so. <laughs> that is, that is, we've worked out this technique from the book. We've worked out that it works in this context. It seems to work slowly with blunt swords. It mm -hmm. seems to work at speed with blunt swords. It seems to work at a lot of speed in varying contexts with blunt swords and equipment, you know, protective equipment and what have you. Okay, let's try it slowly with sharp swords. Let's try it slowly with sharp swords and a bit of protection. Let's try it fast with sharp swords and a bit of protection. Let's try it at full speed with sharp swords and no protection. Right? It's a very, very dangerous process that, if you follow the right protocols, is actually very, very safe. All of the injuries that I'm aware of that were particularly significant you know, and, and bruises here and there come to the territory, but like concussions or broken bones or what have you. We get a little bit of that, mm -hmm. far less than, mm -hmm. say, football, American football, or even ordinary football. Or martial um, arts. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> but that all happens in tournaments. Right. Because people start right. relying on the rules and the judges and the equipment to keep them safe, and mm -hmm. so they go full out. Okay? Oh, yes. Um, when, it's, um, when there's no competitive aspect to it, but you're testing an interpretation of speed with sharks, the mindset is completely different. Oh, that makes um, a lot of sense. And uh, I mean, the other thing to point out is this is after 30 years of experience for anyone listening. Right. When he says, I mean, sure, try it after you do this for 30 years. Maybe, maybe, right, right, right. maybe. And, and, and yeah, one thing I do for my students sometimes when, I'm, when I travel and do seminars back in, you know, before COVID and what have you, um, I very often take a pair of sharp swords with me to a seminar mm -hmm. and I would go around, uh, I'll set the class stuff to do and check who wanted to try this with me. And I'll take the people who wanted to have a go through some sharp on sharp hair work slowly. So their first experience of sharp on sharp is with me, who is keeping everyone safe. And you know, they will actually usually be wearing protection. I will normally wear protection, which makes them relax a bit. Mm -hmm. If my eyes are exposed, they they tense up a bit, they get nervous. I put a fencing mask on, they relax, even though a sharp sword can go right through a fencing mask. So don't trust your equipment ever. <laughs> that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, and so, so the students can get that, oh my God, it's different with sharks experience. Right, oh, really right. Right, it right. It's very, very different. different. Yeah. Well, yeah. even it's like going from a, yeah. 
Like even going from a wood sword to uh, an actual doll sword is a big difference. That's, you know, right. that's a big yeah, difference. Go, going from a, um, uh, what, what is it? A bokatan to a katana? That's a... If, a Balkan. A Balkan. Yeah. Big difference. Big difference. We, uh, I Absolutely. did one class I was in, we cut apples in half. And um, mm. even doing that, because that was an, ex that was like, well, here's the real thing. We're not yeah. going to, we're um, not going to, all we're going to do is cut apples in half, but that's, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, we, you we, wake we up. Cut stuff. <laughs> yeah, we, we yeah. cut stuff with sharp swords quite a lot mm -hmm. um, because it's mm -hmm. good practice. I mean, it'll, you're either testing your technique or you're testing the sword or you're testing the thing you're trying to cut. So, for example, we need to know how much protection a particular kind of medieval clothing will give you. So we make accurate reproductions of the clothing, put it on, for example, a leg of lamb, and then attack it with medieval weaponry of various kinds to see whether you can thrust a sword through that kind of clothing uh -huh. or whether a cut will go through. Right. And you know, some, some things that we think of as like clothing mm -hmm. is actually functionally armor. And are you really putting these? To get anything through. And are you videotaping yeah. these and putting them on Vimeo? Yeah. Okay. Because it mean, sounds like very interesting stuff. So I think people would love yeah, Many people would like to see that. There's at least one video where a colleague of mine who's also a historian and was writing a novel about uh, sort of, not fast a medieval historical novel where people run around with swords mm -hmm. at each other mm -hmm. and he wanted to know how protective various bits of cloth would be or types of cloth would be and he had like some linen quilted stuff and some leather and what have you and he brought this beautiful leg of organic lamb and we covered it with these various things and we cut bits off it and um, put, a, you know, put plastic down and then he made a fantastic curry. Oh, so, so yeah. you didn't waste it. You <laughs> no, no, you wouldn't waste it. Oh, God, no, no. Very good. Um, that, yeah, that, should, good that should be on my Vimeo channel somewhere. Honestly, I, I've, my Vimeo channel is not organized in any way. It's just a place where I dump videos and then I share links to particular things. Oh, okay. So, for example, quite a few of my books have links to videos of me demonstrating things. Mm -hmm. And so that's all on video. So... There's like 500 videos there, but they're not necessarily titled in a particularly helpful way because I, wow. I I don't use it I don't use it to kind of catch idle traffic. Right, right. Um, it's not the point. I have yeah. other ways of catching idle traffic, like I don't know, showing up on other people's podcasts. Which is yeah, yeah. That I hope that works. The, uh, <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> well, I know it's late for you, so we're gonna start to we're gonna start to wrap this up a little bit. Um, I do want people to know that um, on his website, which will obviously be in the description, there's a really good, speaking of videos, there is a really good uh, starting video that you can try um, medieval sword training um, from, from a very beginner standpoint. And there are many, many uh, different classes you can take, pretty much taking it to, to every different level. Is that correct? And you, and then, um, and you have- Yeah, I, yeah. I, there are basically three ways that I teach either mm -hmm. in person, these days often over the internet, but like live. Mm -hmm. um, I have books, which I've written, because some people learn best from books, and it's also helpful for many people to have all the material kind of organized and laid out for them in that way. Mm -hmm. um, and I have online courses, which um, are, all of them are designed to take people from absolutely beginner to whatever level of skill you require in 
various different styles. Um, I should also point out that um, probably the most important thing for modern people is most people are not physically conditioned to do medieval martial arts because medieval, medieval martial arts are generally speaking developed for professional warriors who lived in a culture that didn't have Game Boys, sofas, TVs, any of that stuff. Okay. Yeah. And so yeah. a large part of what I do is I help sort of modern, like, I'm not going to say couch potato, but I just did say couch potato. So there we go. Let's say couch potato. <laughs> it's okay. You're speaking to a American. Yeah. It's an American but, podcast. You can but, say couch I mean, potato. <laughs> I understand right, okay. where we're at in this country. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the thing is, this is actually the magic thing about swords. This is why this is worth doing actually for a living for me, right? Swords are magic. Mm-hmm. They attract people um, who are just not attracted by any other kind of activity, right? The sword is a totemic cultural icon. And some people, when they see a sword, they just go, ooh. And when you put it in their hand, they go, oh, and you kind of see them light up. And that gives yes. them a reason to get up and start moving around. And when they realize that actually, well, let's say they want to do rapier and realize that actually their hips from too many years of sitting and whatever, don't quite do the rapier stuff properly yet. They need training to get from where they are to where they want to go. Right. So, right. Know, range of motion, flexibility, breathing training, joint care, all of that sort of stuff. To my mind, that's an essential component of the whole bringing historical martial arts to modern people project, right? Mm-hmm. So an awful lot of the stuff I mm-hmm. produce is actually aimed to help people get fit enough and healthy enough to do the arts that they want to do. Which is wonderful. I mean, it's one of the things that I've always, I've had all kinds of physical problems in the last 10 years. It's made it very hard for me to move at all. And I really Ouch. miss stuff I used to, you know, I used to lift weights and bicycle mm-hmm. and I'm just now able to start to do these things again. But so I always tell people who are um, anyone of any age, if you're able to do, you know, move, move as much as you can. And this is right. a good example of that is it's a very unique way to say, hey, well, maybe if you pick up a sword, it would encourage you to move. Maybe that would be fun right. for you. You don't like lifting weights. You don't like jogging. You don't like swimming. Trust Honestly, me, you know, a sword's really I, exciting. I, 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 it's a really I good have, way to work out. I have weights, right? And you <laughs> yeah, pick them up and yeah. you put them down again and it's boring. Right, right. right. But, but swords, I thought, I mean, Literally, this, this afternoon, I was teaching um, a private lesson over, over Zoom um, for this guy who's in his late 40s, early 50s, mm-hmm. and has never done any kind of exercise deliberately in his entire life before. Wow, right? wow. But in the last like six, nine months, he kind of, he found out that you could actually do swords and actually like do them, really, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? And so he's, you know, getting into it now and yeah, it's okay in, in five years time you're either five years older or you're dead right those are your options so you're never going to be younger than you are now right and if you haven't done right. it yet but you want to you should do it now because, i think that's a really good philosophy you know, yeah and and i mean like, i really think movement's important obviously we we've, we've oh, we're moving even less 
in the last two years. Um, in America, yeah. we're starting no, to move around just, more, you know, but yeah. It, I'm, I'm taking this meeting standing up and yeah. I'm moving around while we're talking because, because, you know, if I sat down after a while, my back would start to hurt. Right. And my brain would start to win the. But moving on, I, I can keep going for another hour if you want. That's, that's, that's fantastic. Um, we um the oh the other thing I was going to say I, I did want to ask you also um if you want to get started in swords two things it's a two part question one mm -hmm. is what's a good place to buy equipment uh, mm -hmm. especially swords because I I you know I see shops in malls with they're not swords they're yeah, yeah they're like they're display items they're terrible yeah. i'm not i know very little about swords and i can look at those and go ooh. so where, where is there a good place to look for that and do you need there are many yeah and do you need anything to get started you know if you just want to start training on your own or okay. at a club do you really do you, okay. what do you need let, let, okay those are two questions let me take them separately okay first question is um the right place to buy a sword depends on what kind of sword you want and it depends on where you live. Mm -hmm. Because honestly, if you live in France, buying swords from America is vastly more expensive than it is if you live in America. Right? right. Now, most of my swords actually come from American suppliers. Most, oh. not all. Um, but I actually have a page on my website which is exactly for this question where I have um, suppliers that my students, uh, that I've used personally, or that my students have recommended to me, and some suppliers will do you a fantastic rapier, but you should stay away from their fencing gloves, for example. Or others will do you a fantastic helmet, but their swords are rubbish, right? So it's not just what suppliers are good, but what suppliers are good for what things, and it's mm -hmm. actually organized according to um, space. So, sorry, geography, so where they are in the world. So, you know, you know, if, if you're in the States, you probably want an American supplier because the shipping and the tax won't kill you. Um, and the URL for that should be guywindsor.net forward slash equipment. Okay. okay. I'm just going to write myself a little yeah. note. Oh, well, I'll um, have it. If, yeah. No, 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 no. Let, let me write myself a little note. Okay. Because, because I'm just going to check that after we're done. Well, then I know they can. I'll have the main right. website in there, so I know they can get yeah, yeah. from but there. I, yeah, but I'll check it, and then I will. If sure. it, if that doesn't work, I will do a link redirect thing so that it does work, so that that URL will work. But oh, I fantastic! Know because because I have a a mind like a bucket of squirrels. <laughs> if I don't write <laughs> it down, I'll forget. Excellent. Um, okay, so that was the first question. Mm -hmm. So I would say, if you're interested in buying a sword, then you need to get it from a reputable supplier. You need to get it for what it is intended for. So if you want to hang something pretty on your wall, by all means get what we call a wall hanger, mm -hmm. but don't swing it around because it will break and that's dangerous and it's also sad when the pretty thing you bought breaks. Right, um, right. If you're buying it for training, it needs to be bought from a place that supplies training equipment. Okay? Because the swords you get from the shop in the mall that you were talking about, mm -hmm. many of those are not designed to be actually trained. And the difference is fundamental. It's really important. Well, at least because if a blade breaks, it's, you might have a sharp piece of metal flying through the air. Right. I've seen it. Yeah. It happens. Right? <laughs> so that's the first thing. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and your second question was, what do they need? Yeah, to, to show up. Now, right, I'm right. Very, I very firmly believe that ultimately you need good equipment, right? Good quality rapiers, good quality long stars, whatever style it is you're doing. But anybody should be able to start with a stick. A stick. Like, oh, a okay. Stick. Just any old stick. I mean, not some special fancy stick with actually I should produce special fancy sticks with, you know, guy wins at swordschool.com, like burned <laughs> yes. on with lasers and what have you. Oh, and yes. this is the only stick that you can learn with. No, 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 no. Any old stick will do. A bit of broomstick bit of stick out of the garden, it absolutely doesn't matter because one of the things you need to learn is to manipulate the world around you at a distance using this tool, right? So the point of your stick needs to go wherever you want it to go. And when you swing it, it should only hit the things you want it to hit, okay? That is a fundamental skill that tracks across all the different sword arts. And a stick is cheap or free. So you can start with just a stick. And you can even get reasonably far with just a stick. Because let's face it, that's what most practitioners of Japanese martial arts do. Oh, right. Most right. people start out with wooden swords and stay there for ages. Mm-hmm. Right? And you, know, mm-hmm. they, you can do pair drills and you can do all sorts of things. You can't get the feeling of how steel behaves with steel unless you've got two steel swords. Um, but most historical martial arts clubs, if you show up, will have loaner gear these days, this was not true 20 years ago, but these days, most historical martial arts clubs will have loaner gear. So beginners show up and they get to borrow often a plastic sword, which is, to my mind, that's not as good as a stick. At least the stick is honestly not a sword. Okay, that makes sense. But you know, it's a sword like object. It looks like it looks a little bit like a sword and, right, and right. you know, it, it it's you know, it's fine for beginners. It, well, clubs that can't afford to buy twenty very expensive swords to hand out to random beginners, mm-hmm. right? We'll very often buy 20 cheap plastic swords to hand out to random beginners. And that's a perfectly reasonable you know, thing to do on their, on their part. So mostly you can get started in a club without any equipment and, you know, try it out, see what works. Probably the first thing you want to buy is your own mask because honestly it gets pretty disgusting putting somebody else's head protection on your face over and over again. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and again, different styles require different kinds of head protection. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. A good steel sword, I mean, they start at around the $200 mark and they can go up. I mean, my absolute favorite, most beautiful, lovely handcrafted custom made sword um, costs significantly more than the car I was driving when I bought it. Wow. And does it have diamonds? Is it diamond? No, no, no. It's actually fairly functional. <laughs> I mean, it's entirely functional. It's extremely functional. It's stupendously uh-huh. good at its job. Wow. Um, and its job isn't, I mean, it's very pretty mm-hmm. in its own sort of way. Oh, I'll, I'll... Here Oh, yeah. So you, maybe yeah. describe that for people who are, yeah. are listening. It's a long sword. It is beautiful. Um, styled after one that's in the Wallace collection in London. And it has a simple cross guard and a sort of shaped leather handle and what we call it, like a fishtail type pommel or a sense pommel actually. 
which is sort of flat so that you can hold it in the hand. And it is about four feet long and it is very sharp. And the really cool thing about it that you can't probably see over the internet is that it has a Damascus bladed sword or pattern welded, um, pattern welded blade, which means that the Smith took iron and steel in layers and mm -hmm. weld them together and twisted them and welded them together and beat them out. And you get this fabulous pattern. But most critically, at the cutting edge, where these layers come to the edge, you get what is effectively micro serration, right? Which means that it's like a tiny little saw. So oh, it's super sharp, but it cuts appallingly well. Wow. Because wow. when you slice, it's like the difference between cutting steak with a normal knife and cutting steak with a steak knife. Mm -hmm. right? but it's, I mean, the, these little serrations are microscopic. You can't see them with the naked eye. Right? But you feel them when you cut. Oh, my God. This thing is beautiful. So, yes, definitely worth more than any car I've ever been. What? <laughs> to me. That, that's priorities, amazing. right? Right, right. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and I was going to say, you mentioned that, you know, you had injuries and what have you that kept you from moving um i firmly believe that it doesn't matter what your restrictions are there is always something that you can do okay um for instance a student of mine um a couple of years ago had a collapsed lung right he's a very tall skinny guy and his lung just collapsed nothing to do with anything he was doing it was just the doctors reinflated it and said well you're a tall skinny guy this happens sometime Wow. But, but like, yeah. So for like six weeks, he wasn't allowed to do anything even remotely resembling physical training. Mm -hmm. Right. So I taught him meditation, various kinds of meditation. Right. We found one that suited him. And so he could use that. So, okay, he couldn't improve his agility or his speed or his strength or his sword handling skill, particularly during that time. But he got better at concentrating on the things he needed to concentrate on and better at sort of, well, better at being okay in his own head. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right? Now, meditation is dangerous. If you do too much of it of the wrong type, it can do all sorts of damage. Um, but, yeah, think of it. If it changes your brain, it has to be dangerous. That's interesting. Right. I, I think that's the first person I've ever heard say meditation could be dangerous. That's that's a very that's an interesting I point mean, of view. So so I, meditation, you start with five minutes, I guess. see how it mm -hmm. feels, and maybe build mm -hmm. it up to twenty. And to my mind, the optimal the optimal balance between beneficial effects versus risks peaks at about twenty minutes, mm -hmm. once or twice a day. Okay, some people go to an hour. Some people go on like 10 day long, 12 hours a day meditation retreats. And okay. Some people also run for 110 kilometers in a single go without stopping. Right. I wouldn't do that. Right. No. Right? Yes. So, so, yeah. yeah. Good point. So, you know, it's with, with any training, you have to, you have to take it, you have to respect it for what it can do to you. Mm -hmm. Right. And if it has the capacity to make a positive change, it has the capacity to make a change, which then might be negative, right? You can hurt yourself lifting weights. You can hurt yourself so you thought you can hurt yourself. Literally sitting and meditating, there are documented instances of it either triggering or causing 
don't know which, um, psychotic breaks. Interesting. Right? Interesting. So, and there's a fantastic book on this called The Buddha Pill. I'm blanking mm -hmm. on the author, but it's he outlines sort of the the indisputable case for stating that meditation is not perfectly safe. Right. <laughs> that's that's just it's just okay. interesting. I have no yeah. I can um, definitely understand how that might be. I've I guess I've never been disciplined enough to go beyond about an hour and I but and I've right. had from many meditation practitioners and teachers that twenty minutes is probably the best thing. Uh, right. a, a lot of this stuff I'm listening to now is just try and be in that state all the time. You don't have to sit down with a pillow and a candle i mean there's you know but it's nice well it's nice it's very it's a nice, nice to take it's a nice. break from and, things and it can be used it, for, it and of course you know, nice. we do lots of different yeah. kinds of meditation so mm -hmm. um i mean I, I i have a whole sort of meditation course on this sort of, i have a, a course on solo training and it's part of that course is that there's a sort of sub course within it which is just a like a six-week meditation training thing which takes you through four different styles of meditating um, and gives you ideas of how to how to work with each one and then most people then pick the one they like the best um, it, it's so it's so interesting because i've i was introduced to meditation a long long time ago a long time ago mm -hmm. and I've, I've i've done it off and on i've never been extremely disciplined about it but it, i've always got benefit from it and right. um i've spoke i've heard from a lot of people mostly people younger than myself but not always uh, who say they just can't do it they just can't sit yeah. there i mean i've even heard commentators say this on tv i just can't stop for five minutes and not do anything and it to me that's, well, that's a it's scary it's a problem it's a problem. It's a, problem. you know, it's, it's certainly it not is. helping that we have all these devices to encourage that. Sure. You know, five, that minutes brain. Is, is, five minutes is a big ask for someone who's never done it. Never done it. Yeah. It's like, okay. Yeah. Most people, when they come to my beginner's courses, can't do five push ups. So we teach them how to do one push up and they get to one decent push up maybe in a week, maybe in a month, maybe in a year. Mm -hmm. But they pretty much all get there eventually. Not all, but you know, most people get to one decent push-up eventually. Mm -hmm. Some people show up to their first class of the beginners course and they can do 50 push-ups without breaking a sweat and well, good for them. Lucky them. Yeah. <laughs> they'll, have, they'll have difficulties with other things. But the thing is, five minutes is too much, right? The I start people on six breaths, right? And if that seems like too much, we start them on one breath. Can you meditate for, can you pay attention can to you your breathe? breath for one yeah. inhalation, and one exhalation. That's it. And well, how did that feel? Would you like to do another one? Mm -hmm. Right. And most mm -hmm. people say that was right. Actually, I'll do another one. And eventually, you build it up to six. When you can meditate for six breaths, you're meditating. For most people, it's about a minute. Right. And right. that is enough to generate a, in most people, most of the time, a beneficial. Of reduction in stress and tension and you know measurable signs of arousal right like mm -hmm. blood pressure yeah and you know if if everyone did six breaths three or four times a day they'd probably feel a lot better oh right? absolutely and that, yeah i'd agree yeah, with that and, yeah. and that when they're sold on six breaths maybe then you take it to five minutes mm -hmm. right because that's like 30 breaths or something like that yeah. 
that's a lot, really. It, it's well, interesting. I mean, not if to I, you and me. Not yeah, me and me, I was say, if I go five minutes, I, yeah, you go, wow, that was half an yeah, hour. I'm, yeah, at the 10-minute mark, I'm just really getting into it. Right. But I've been Starting. doing this a long time. Yeah. Right? You, you need to come at it from the perspective of the person to whom this is all new and weird, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And the trick is, I think, to give them the experience of doing it such that they get some of the benefits straight away so that they'll get an idea of why it might be worth putting a bit of effort in to get better at it. Yeah. And not you know, load them up with unreasonable expectations. You know, if I said, okay, well, yeah, if you can't do push-ups on one knuckle, like this, do, 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 on a wooden floor, then I'm not interested. Oh, gosh. Like, I mean, yeah, I would I have three is. students. Uh, yeah, I have, I have Those were the days. Students. I would have I... three. <laughs> yes. Right? Because... Only an idiot would do that. And, well, right? plus, I'm one of those idiots. I'm one of yeah. <laughs> I'm one of those idiots that used to love doing that. But it's a certain kind. Right. You know, it's the same thing. I used to love lifting weights, but I completely understand why people don't. I mean, I right. get why. Why would you like to go into a, a gym full of sweaty people and lift up iron objects? I get why that doesn't make sense to everyone. Yes, but yeah. you know, yeah, yeah, I totally get um, that. But so you know, and then if you can. If you can meditate for a few minutes, if you can't move much, then meditation mm-hmm. is a good place to go. And if you can move a little bit, then you can do maybe some, uh, well, like if you can control your breathing and can wave your arms a little, a little bit, right? Even if you can't wave your arms a little bit, you can still do a whole bunch of breathing exercises. Right. Which will, yeah. um, I mean, yep. you can create measurable improvement in your uh, ability to deal with oxygen. So in other words, just sort of aerobic fitness, if you like, mm-hmm. just by doing certain breathing exercises. Because it makes you breathe more efficiently, and there are ways of doing it such that you are training to keep going without oxygen. Right? Right. And if, right. You, can, if you can walk and breathe, right, already, there's a whole bunch more stuff we can do. And, so, and it just builds <laughs> up and builds up and builds up. And if you can actually, like, you know, if you're actually physically capable of actually standing on your own two feet and breathing and actually hold a sword in your hand, right? Then wow, that's that's the hard part done. Well, that, it's, just, it's, it's, it's interesting how people. Yeah, it's interesting how people forget how much they breathe. You know, pe- people just right. kind of they they forget that they're breathing all the time. So it somehow seems like a chore to pay attention to it. It's it like, really you're doing this all the time. It's okay. You're always yeah. breathing. But <laughs> I, I had this, this funny experience the other day. Um, I'm learning to fly airplanes just for fun because flying is awesome. Um, yes, but I have to is. go and get a medical, mm-hmm. um, which you re- you, is required before you're allowed to uh, fly the plane by yourself. Right? You have to have a medical certificate. Mm-hmm. And that involved going to a doctor and getting all sorts of measurements, you know, ECGs. And, and when he was listening to my lungs, he was like, I used to breathe. <laughs> he couldn't hear anything. <laughs> I am breathing. It's like, look, my normal breathing rate is, I don't know, maybe three breaths a minute or something, maybe four. Wow. It's really slow. Really slow. Yeah. Just because that's what I'm trained for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I said, I, I was confused, right? Because I was breathing normally. And he said, so I said, do you want me to hyperventilate? I said, no, 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 just breathe. I'm like, I am breathing. This is how I breathe. <laughs> this is how I do it. 
Yeah. Well, c- uh, congratulations on uh, working on your pilot's license. I actually, oh, thank you. yeah, I have a pilot's license, and oh, I, I do. Cool? It, it's fantastic. I actually fly online with simulators, people all over really? the world in a simulator. So uh-huh. it, yeah, but yeah. Lot, so I talk to lots of pilots all the time, and they'd be interested to to know you're getting a license. Well, I'm getting a license is pretty a bit strongly. I'm at eleven hours and five minutes of of flight time so far. So I'm a long way away. It's a, from any it kind it of a took life. me, yeah, it took me years. I I started and had to drop out for a long time. And when I started again to finish, I found out that it's a pretty, it's kind of a common story uh, that yeah. people start and start and stop and start and stop. Uh, it's a really, it's a nice feeling. Um, I was inter- it was interesting to hear what you had to go through though, because in for our physical. Now it's been a while since I had a physical, but when I had mine, it was pretty much they put a mirror under my nose and they said you oh you are breathing all right thank you and they sign off <laughs> Go well, no, I, had, I had i had the ecg and everything like, wow. like stickers all over you oh and, my gosh yeah. they do nothing um, like that in america uh, unfortunately really? oh, not okay. for private they, they i'm sure it's different they for should. commercial they sh- yes they should yes they they should. Should. i mean if you have a stroke or a heart attack yes. or something like that it's, when you're it's, flying the plane yeah i'm amazed it. i know that's it. I guess That's they like just figure well. Of metal it, falling from the sky right. onto somebody's house. But it's just you and your friends, so it's no big deal. But yeah, it's yeah. people in the house. Oh well, there's that. I know. I, mean, <laughs> I, I, I completely agree. Yeah, I was really yeah. shocked about how quick the medical was, how easy it was to get a medical. Um, and maybe, like I say, it may have changed. I don't think so. It's it's pretty much. I mean, I couldn't I couldn't see very well at the time. Mm-hmm. And he said, "That's okay." I mean, I can't see any better now, but I think now yeah. I would take the test with my glasses on. But it, it oh, was yeah. it was like, no, you can, that's good enough. You can see. see I, I was <laughs> like, what? Like, well, one of the conditions of my medical certificate is I am I am medically licensed to to fly mm-hmm. on condition that I wear my glasses. Right, right? and that makes it would sense. actually it would actually be against yeah. the law in Britain for me to fly without my glasses if I was solo in the plane because my medical license requires me to have them because my eyesight is not good enough for a pilot without my glasses. With the glasses, I'm fine. Sure, and that's what I, that's what I was expecting at the time. Yeah. And, and they, were, they were like, no, nah, yeah. it's okay. <laughs> it's, it was like 20, we're, not, we're not 20 20, about public safety. Was, here, you, you are, and it's not a, <laughs> that's not a bad thing. People complain about, <laughs> about it, every kind of public safety regulation there is. And it's like, yeah, okay, well, it's for you that we have them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I really don't want to end up why. crashing my plane on somebody's head. That'd be very bad. No, it'd be very bad. Not that I have a plane, I mean, but still. Yeah. Um, I, one of the greatest things I learned when I was um, taking my lessons was I went to a safety seminar and they were going through things that might happen, you know, emergencies you might run into. And has this happened to you? You know, have you ever flown a wood propeller and the propeller broke and my instructor raised her hand? And then oh. have you ever had um, an engine failure and my instructor raised her hand? <laughs> That's, like, that's who you want teaching that's who you that want because every time it was an incident it was never an accident it became an incident you know it, right. it, it was landed plane was perfectly right. fine and and i also learned that in 90 percent of the cases and this is probably all over the world 90 percent it's the it is the pilot that did something wrong it was something right. in the chain of flight that went wrong yeah. it was rarely the aircraft and the and ga aircraft are not well taken care of but even in oh, yeah, yeah. oh good good they're, I mean, they're here, not always here, here. yeah the, but, the Cessna I'm learning yeah. in is 
Um, it was made in 1974. I was made in 1973, so we're about the same age. Uh -huh. And it's, so it's, it's a bit long in the tooth for a plane, but every 75 flying hours, it has to go to the engineers for like checkups and repairs or every three months, whichever is sooner. Yeah. And that's true for right. school, for any uh, aircraft at a school here, that's going to be true. Like any, you know, anything that's rented. If it's your plane, the rules are, are a bit different. Yeah, they're a bit looser. Oh. You have longer, those are longer uh, terms because you're not flying under, uh, here it's 123 regulations. You know, if, you're, if the plane is for hire, it's much stricter how often you have right. to keep it up. So I, the, I, it yeah. may be the same here. I, I don't yeah. know. I've only ever flown you know, higher aircraft because, you know, I, I fight with swordsmen. Yeah, swords exactly. And yeah. you know, people, people, people so, who are professional swordsmen in the 21st century do not own light aircraft. They just don't. <laughs> I can under, I can understand that. I can, I, I, I totally understand yeah. that. Well, I but actually like, uh, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, I was just thinking because um, one of the things we did recently is the drill for what do you do if your engine catches fire after takeoff? Oh yeah, yeah. And I'm like. Do Why are we doing this? Fire after takeoff? Are you insane? Why are we even getting into this thing if it's any slight chance that it's going to catch fire after takeoff? Well, of course, it's very rare, but you know, you need to know what to do if it happens, mm -hmm. and so mm -hmm. you drill it. And actually, one of the reasons that I'm particularly—I wasn't—I didn't do it for this reason, but it just—it's a happy accident that I'm getting an insight into how a very dangerous activity is made safe through training right which i can apply many of these things i can apply to how we train instructors in historical martial arts because that is a naturally and obviously dangerous thing i mean swinging swords at people's heads is always going to be obviously dangerous but there are ways that we can use training and good practices to make it completely safe and it is astonishingly safe it's way safer than horse riding and way safer than riding a motorbike and way safer than any of the footballs you care to name right right but right. one of the reasons that it's so safe is because it's so obviously dangerous right so we take so you take measures because the sword is obviously dangerous but you yeah. know people driving along in their car and it feels kind of like their living room and they've got their music playing and they've got a cup of coffee in the cup holder and they're driving along, blah, 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 and it kind of lulls them into the sense of security that, oh, well, nothing bad's going to happen because I'm all, you know, more comfy, more comfortable. Yeah. Right. And then something happens and people die. Yeah. Right. And also, Fast. there's, I, I mean, one thing I thought of when I was before, I, I've been in, interested in flying forever. So mm. when I was training, it's something I thought about a lot. You don't have to go through any of this to drive a car. Your car does mm. not have to be safe to be on the road. I mean, it doesn't very safe. It, in, in Europe, in Europe it, does. it does. That's true. And I've, my, I've, my car yeah, gets it checked does. every year by. Yeah. See, by ours does. Ours does no. not at all. I mean, it, there, there's. It, it's completely insane. There are there are yeah. rules about, you know, if your windshield is cracked or your tires are too low and all these different things. But those rules are only effective if you get pulled over. Uh, right. Otherwise, they're completely ineffective. But they're very. The only thing that matters here is will it pass the the smog regulations which right. are kind of bizarre in themselves. Yeah, I'm all right. for smog regulations, but the way mm -hmm. they, they measure it is kind of odd. 
So, yeah, yeah uh, but I think about that all the time. If you get in a plane, it has to be, for one, you have to go over it, you know, stem yeah. the stern before you even get in the plane. And no one even thinks about that with their automobile. Well, I've, I've always sort of held a quick eye on the tires when mm -hmm. I get in a car. Always. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good idea. When up, if the oil pressure light comes on or anything like that, I check it. And because cars are, to me, cars are obviously dangerous. Yeah, and it, you're right. It's not that obvious to everyone. They do, I mean, the ads also lull you into sleep. Right. It, it's like they, they make it look like the funnest thing to do in the world. <laughs> Isn't this yeah. great? And also, I mean, the other side of that is you can, in most cases, pull over to the side of the road where you can't do that in an airplane right. very much. Yes, exactly. <laughs> if your car goes wrong, again, the safety checks here don't check that the car will run. They check that it will stop. Oh, but see, that's good. Right. I think that's good. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so, it's so it's not a it's not a service check. It is a it's called the um, Ministry of Transport check, the MOT here in the UK. And in mm -hmm. Finland, it's called the Kassastus, which is basically just inspection. Everyone knows what, what they mean. Mm -hmm. And there's a set series of checks that the car has to go through to make sure that it is safe to drive, and that includes things like is it too rusty? Because if your if your car is too rusty, then if you hit something, you're going to get the engine in your lap. Right, right. Yeah, no, we don't. We don't have anything like that here. You can, I, I, I have you can drive a death trap. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. <laughs> that is incredible. Yeah. Uh, well, we've gotten far off the subject, and I actually have, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I've actually scheduled some other things to do today, which okay. is kind of rare. Um, I've really, really enjoyed talking to you. This has been great. I like uh, this. It's been fantastic. So I will just, I'll just wrap her up here and say, you've been listening to, were you still talking? This is Joel Albrecht, and my guest today has been Guy Windsor, an absolute uh, treasure trove of information about medieval martial arts, swordsmanship, uh, breathing, uh, automobiles, <laughs> all kinds of things. It's been a fantastic conversation. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. And, and this is, I say this to a lot of guests, but I'm going to uh, say it again. I hope I can have you back on because it seems like we could talk more about this and other subjects. There'll be information about how to find out more and um, uh, possibly start your own uh, swordsmanship training, medieval martial arts training, any type of martial arts training. And um, there are several books that he's written and that are available and also that he um, that he learned from that are pretty interesting and worth looking into. So thanks again for listening. Remember to share the best way to help me uh, with the podcast. It's just to share it, tell your friends, things like that. So as I always say, be good to each other and uh, be good to yourselves. Thanks for having me.